Welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every episode, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema, completely sequentially, and we've made it all the way up to 1925 this year. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell, a filmmaker. And, uh... And we are podcasters. Oh, gotta do that every time. <laughs> we do now, yeah. Uh, just a heads up to everybody who's watching this on YouTube. Uh, if you prefer to listen, you can go on your podcast app of choice and search us on up. And then you can you can find us there if you want to just listen to the audio. And if you're listening on out in podcast land, uh, at least for the time being, we're going to be running... Uh, parts of the movies on, uh, like while we're talking about them, so you can sort of watch along and get a feel for the movie while we're t- uh, while you're listening. Uh, and let me throw this at the beginning too. Uh, follow us on Instagram and stuff. Watch us on Instagram. Uh, sure. L- look look at us on on a social media. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now that we have all that out of the way, Glenn, Glenn, how you doing? Uh, a little tired. We're recording this one pretty early in the morning, which is unusual for both of us, I think. We're not early morning people. No. Um, I have some, I guess, vaguely podcast-related news, which uh, we had both talked about sort of which silent movies we thought would be good to put on in the background of, at a party. And I tried actually mm. doing that uh, this past week. Uh, my roommate had a birthday party, and I... I asked first, but I, I put on some some silent movies in the background to see you now playing, you know, in the living room, um, and it's it seemed like a, a a good thing. I don't know, people seemed to was it like a smash. I know because it, it was the sort of thing where it was like no one was like sitting and watching all of them, but it was like I could tell when it was like drawing people's attention, um, which is kind of cool to see. What were some highlights on that uh, playlist? I mean, the like the climax of Safety Last. Like multiple people were just watching that because it was so insane and crazy. <laughs> it just people were just like, I gotta see what's gonna happen. Um, did you put on all of Safety Last, or did you edit something together? No, it, it was just, just a... all of Safety Last played. I mean, it's a pretty short movie, but um, I see, and it's uh, fairly, I think visually interesting one even outside of that like big climax um mm. but yeah uh I want, maybe we should make that podcast part of the make that playlist i should say part of the podcast playlists on youtube because yeah the most visually interesting and gripping silent film not just visually interesting and gripping but like good vibes too i feel like helps yeah you know yeah. um I don't know, there were certain criteria. I was like, no, this it has to fit within these parameters. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, for good vibes, you want to put a lot of the, the devil stuff, a lot of the Meliers and <laughs> spooky things. Give yeah. Do something spooky, you know? Exactly. <clears throat> uh, I'm in the middle of moving, which is... Uh, Always a uh, fun time. It's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. It's, it's one of my least favorite things to do in life. That I have experienced. <sighs> yes, and then also, uh, 
the moment that my lease ends in four days is also right in the middle of a film festival that we're doing. So uh, that that's just even more pressure on Love top that. of all that. Yeah. I, oh, boy. <laughs> I hate it, <laughs> but we're here to talk about old movies. Indeed. Uh, but bef- before we do that, we always like to orient ourselves into the year, try and fig- give us give us a little context for what's going on. Indeed. Uh, so, Glenn, why don't you bring us into 1925 with your news? The news of the year, 1925. Balto and Togo, two fearless sled dogs helped to successfully deliver life-saving diphtheria medication in the frozen wilderness of Alaska. F. Scott Fitzgerald publishes The Great Gatsby. Art Deco is coined at the International Exhibition of Modern Decorative and Industrial Arts in Paris. British explorer Percy Fawcett disappears into the wild jungles of the Amazon in search of a lost city, never to be seen again. John T. Scopes is found guilty of teaching evolution in Tennessee. Mount Rushmore National Memorial is dedicated in South Dakota. Ace of Spies, Sidney Riley is executed by Soviet agents. All right, thanks, Glenn. Eventful year. Yeah, yeah. A lot of I, a lot of news fit to read in that voice. I feel like <laughs> that's that is true. Yes, we're getting really we got into this, we got uh, explorers disappearing in the jungle. We got aces of spies. <laughs> I think I think as a podcast we've generally come down against uh, D.W. Griffith, and for similar reasons, and also the reason uh, that it's boring and bad. Uh, I think we should stake our official stance of anti Mount Rushmore. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, Mount Rushmore, big dumb thing that shouldn't exist, and I've been there. <laughs> I can vouch for that. Yeah, I mean, whatever. It's like as a, like a sculpture fine whatever faces on a mountain but yeah it is like for other reasons it absolutely should not exist alfred hitchcock should have just destroyed it when he yeah he should have blo- blown it up <laughs> i think that probably would have made things worse but yeah if if he blew up mount rushmore we would have ourselves like like four different planet of the apes situations <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay, let's let's uh, let's get on to our feature presentation. Indeed. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Much like last episode, we are not doing any shorts this this week. No, because we're tired. And... Yes. Yeah. Well, there's <laughs> there's a lot going on, especially in with features. I feel like there are less kind of notable shorts these past two years, and yeah, our time is limited, so. Unfortunately. Deal with it. Yeah. Make us a Patreon and then give us money <laughs> if, if you want If you want us to do shorts again. We will, but uh, just not now. Uh, let's come on in with, I don't know, what, what do you want? Start with something spooky. Ooh. The Phantom of the Opera. Indeed. I was not that familiar with Phantom of the Opera. I um just as a story in general. I I I think I knew the broad strokes, but I've mm-hmm. never seen any seen or read any kind of version of it specifically, right. except for Phantom of Paradise, which is oh. a great movie. Great movie. I need to see Phantom of Paradise. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> um, I, it's true. I think this is the first 
time of like, yeah, I'd, I'd never watched the musical. I'd never read the book. I'd never seen any no. of the movies. So this was the first time I like properly had seen any Phantom of, of the Opera thing. You being in New York City, you only have a little bit of time left to watch the, the I, I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> Full disclosure, I don't think I'm going to go. <laughs> uh, so this was uh, starring Lon Chaney, who mm-hmm. we previously saw in He Who Gets Slapped. Indeed. Um, and uh, Probably his what? most famous movie, I would argue. I, I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh this is another one where he's doing his doing his crazy makeup, crazy mm-hmm. uh, monster, quote unquote, makeup. Yeah. Um, and we watched the uh, the more prevalent version of this movie is a like nineteen twenty nine mm-hmm. re release of it, which is it like loses about half an hour out of the runtime. Um, but we watched the original blurry yeah. uh 1925 right. 16 millimeter version <laughs> well because i think the 1929 one i haven't seen it but it's i think they reshot a lot of it and so that's why it's better quality is because it's it's from a 35 millimeter print because hmm. um, they reshot it for sound i mean certainly this would have been shot on 35 millimeter right it's just yeah. the only yeah. 16 millimeter um elements exist mm-hmm. yeah hmm. exactly I think 16 millimeter had only just been like invented as a film stock at this point. So I think a lot of people know the Phantom of the Opera story, but I don't, I don't know how much detail we need to go into. But on the other hand, I had never, you know, I wasn't that familiar, I guess. I, I was kind of surprised at how I feel like I had this like vague idea in my head of like, I guess that's what kind of what Phantom of the Opera is. And then the movie was like exactly that. um like i feel like in my head i was like i don't know there's like an opera ghost or something and then right off the gap off the bat like in the intertitles they're like we have an opera ghost (laughs) right yeah it's everybody's everybody's a little uh here's all of these rumors of uh of a phantom that's haunting the opera house uh they they have their changing rooms and all of that stuff are like deep inside of the the catacombs of of the opera house, which it, it's a it's an opera house with catacombs. Yeah, I mean, hey, Paris got a lot of catacombs. <laughs> uh, um, I thought something notable was also before we get fully started that this was it says filmed entirely in Universal City, California. Um, yeah, so it's a. Uh, Universal is is a real deal enough that they've got their own city now. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I was reading about the set for this movie that they built of the Paris Opera House. Like, the main sort of opera house set was left standing until, like, 2014 or something like that. Jeez. <laughs> like, it was just a standing set on the Universal lot for decades. Um, which is pretty wild and it was only fairly recently like uh dismantled i think it's like it still exists in pieces somewhere but yeah they they went they went hard on the sets in this movie yeah for sure um i i can see why they were proud of the fact that it was all filmed in california like on mm-hmm. on, on set uh 
because these some some of these exterior shots have the lavishness of a of an Eric von Stroheim uh, <laughs> out, outdoor set. Yeah, I don't know if they went quite as hard as that um, in terms of like needlessly giant sets, <laughs> needlessly wasteful sets. <laughs> I did notice how there's towards the end uh, there's like a chase scene and they run past uh, Notre Dame Cathedral and it's the same set from Hunchback of Notre Dame, the earlier yeah. Lon Chaney movie. Because they built a set for that also. So it's like, hey, it, we still got this one. This is also set in Paris. We've got to get more use out of this. <laughs> it, it This also had me thinking about a little bit how um, movies of the silent era could be kind of casually more international than it mm-hmm. was uh, able to be for sa- sound films. Because uh, you didn't have to get over this you know, thing of people speaking a different language. Uh, so it, yeah, I, I mean, we've, we've definitely seen this before, but it's, I, I think that, um, it's rare for American movies these days to be set entirely and starring entirely characters that are from another country. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people will do Phantom of the Opera adaptations, but, uh, uh, when you can just have them speak in English in the intertitles, it helps yeah. a lot. I think now they, they do the thing that everyone does in American films, where something is set entirely in France, and every character is French, and they all talk like this, don't they? They're all English. <laughs> it's just foreign enough to trick our American I know. Leaders. It's just like, the Europe, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> Should we talk about the plot? Yeah. Give me a, give me a little plot. So yeah, Lon Chaney plays the the titular phantom um, of the opera house. Uh, the movie opens with the opera house being sold, and the like previous owners, like, after the sale goes through, like, oh yeah, by the way, there's a ghost. Um, <laughs> you're gonna get ghosts. Um, and yeah, we've seen all these kind of rumors and people around the opera house like talking about the phantom. Turns out the phantom is a guy who just kind of lives in the bowels of the opera house and has kind of uh, a crush on one of the, the opera understudies named Christine and threatens uh, chaos and mayhem. If she doesn't sing in the opera. Yeah. He's always kind of sticking his hand out of, he, he, he's so familiar with all of the catacombs and nooks and crannies of this opera house Mm -hmm. that he can kind of traverse in the shat- in in between the walls and uh and stick his hand out of out of mysterious places and place notes on people's desk to yeah. say uh make make my girlfriend the the main singer yeah. or I'll do something bad. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like secret doors and stuff going on which I yeah. wonder if is just a real thing in in Paris opera houses. <laughs> it made me think of uh, of Phantomas a lot, and, yeah, uh, <laughs> and how it's just like yeah, lots of like trap doors and and like hidden chambers, chambers to you know imprison and torture people ah. and, and all this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, you love to see it. And yeah, all, all of this, all of the sets in this are are really cool. The people who run the opera house kind of call the Phantom's bluff, and so then the Phantom drops a chandelier on the audience. 
the only the only reason I know about the whole chandelier thing is because I've seen the Phantom of the Opera episode of Comedy Bang Bang, <laughs> where Paul F. Tompkins as Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, is talking about their their chandelier budget for their for, <laughs> <laughs> for their production of so you, the Phantom of the Bang Bang set. <laughs> you knew there was going to be a lot of chandelier stuff in this movie, or at least like an expensive prop mm, uh yeah an expensive prop chandelier being ruined at every show um so the phantom kind of kidnaps christine out of her dressing room um and takes her into the the bowels uh or into the catacombs to his man cave beneath the opera house um <laughs> and it is he sleeps in a coffin he's a real He's he's kind of a uh, he's a real character. He yeah, sa- he, is. he says when he sleeps in the coffin uh, that it keeps him mindful of that other dreamless sleep that lasts forever. Yeah, uh, very, <laughs> very, very dark and brooding and mysterious. Yeah. And, and handsome. Uh, Except uh, I feel like he's the, got a mask on the whole time. Yeah, he's wearing this mask, and he's like, "Hey, Christine, big fan." Come, don't touch the mask. <laughs> come live in my man cave. The one thing you don't do is don't touch my mask. And so then, you know, he's playing his organ. Uh, and she's like, oh, I, w- I really want to take that mask off. She's just itching she, to take that mask off. She 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 looks kind of like she's playing a big old prank on him, you know? Yeah. Uh, she's like, sort of very, fun. very playfully sort of like... And then probably the most like famous shot in this whole movie is then she reaches sort of over his head and takes the mask off and we reveal the the horrifying visage of the phantom mm. of eric the phantom i do like how his name is just eric yeah yeah <laughs> i mean yeah that's in the original story mm-hmm. it's uh uh it's got a k at least it's a little true it's a little uh, Jazzing it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that K, and this is like really nitty gritty, um, but I think this and another movie in the title cards, uh, all of the K's had descenders on them, uh, mm. which I thought is in a strange way of writing K's. Were they like they the, the these... long uh, sort of leg at the bottom? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is some real font stuff, but like in the way that you would have a J, for example, dip below the line mm-hmm. when you are writing. Yeah, uh, you don't typically do that with a K, and uh, maybe it was a common fashion of the time to write Ks with the the bottom part extending below the uh, the baseline of the the font. Zone. Yeah. Funny you should bring that up, because this week, I actually, having watched a couple of these movies with very similar sort of intertitle fonts, I found a font online that is, like, the typeface of these intertitles, with, with the weird Ks. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I thought about maybe trying to, like, switch the font in the video for that, but I think I think the font in there is too classy. It's like, it's gotta stay... The font just, that we have for our logo and yeah. whatnot. I, I tried, like, switching it out to see, like, how it would look, but it's like, eh, it's a joke. It's um, a very, it, I think it's, like, one of those, uh, <laughs> like, default Adobe Premiere fonts I know, but it's, or it's, whatever. it's perfect. Um, but yeah, I want to, like, 
I don't know what you said will happen this month, but I'm looking at I have my notes written in it right now. So Oh. Oh wow. Yeah. We're we're getting in the font zone lately. <laughs> this is probably a good place to talk about the thing this movie's best known for, kind of, which is Lon Chaney's performance and makeup. Yeah. Um and it's interesting that, you know, for the first half hour of this movie you don't even see Lon Chaney. Mm-hmm. Um he is appearing in shadow. A lot of good shadow the, work. For sure. Especially in the background of intertitles, which is mm. really neat. Where he's kind of swimming around looking ominous in the background mm-hmm. but when, with the text in front of him. Uh, it, it feels very dynamic to have like an intertitle with the, the motion behind it that, uh, that, that this movie has at some points. Um, but Christine initially thinks that he is... Uh, like this benefactor spirit who is helping her out in, uh, which in a way he is mm-hmm. uh, in, in her opera career and, and helping her with music. And then yes, she, when she sees his creepy mask, which I don't know who's involved in the creepy mask, but it's, it's, it prepares you for the even creepier face. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think you'd maybe pick a, a less creepy mask to kind of, throw off the fact that his his face is all uh uh skull looking um i was very like i had seen images from this movie some clips and things so like i knew what the makeup looked like but it was still i was still kind of taken aback just by like how how well it holds up and how it's just like he he doesn't look like a a real person like uh he's like changes his whole like the shape of his entire head. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. After we've seen in He Who Gets Slapped, um, Lon Chaney without, you know, heavy makeup on. Right, he's still doing what his clown face makeup. Looks like. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at the beginning of that movie, you see him in normal garb. Mm-hmm. And so we know what he looks like, and it really draws a big contrast between the. Uh, the hours and hours of makeup that he surely did to put on the phantom uh, face. Yeah. Which I understand why they had a lot of shots of him with the mask back on again, because I'm sure that that slowed things yeah. down a little bit for him to have to <laughs> redo the makeup every time. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's it's uh, it's legitimately quite scary looking. Like, yeah. Especially when it's like he's just kind of leering right into the lens. It's like, damn, this is... This is intense. Yeah, in addition to this, like really heavy and and spooky makeup, uh, they there are a lot of really dramatic shadows that are being cast on his face. Mm-hmm. The whole time. Yeah, it's very underlit. Yeah, his face is very angular, so it captures those shadows mm-hmm. really well. Um, yeah, I was reading about uh, sort of like the process he had to go through to like get into the full makeup, and it was apparently very painful um, and uncomfortable. Because, like, he was, like, the, the fake scalp, the fake teeth. Uh, and he, like, stuffed stuff in his cheeks to kind of make his cheekbones bigger. And then to sort of get his nose to look the way it does, this, like, flat, weird, like, skull nose. He put wire in his nostrils to, like, flatten them back against his nose, I guess. Wow. Um, which, like, after, I guess, a couple of hours, it would, they would start bleeding. And so it was, like... He really, he really committed hard to the the makeup in this movie, but it, it paid off. 
What a guy. Yeah. Lon Chaney. Um, and that's like every Lon Chaney movie where he does make up. It seems like that's sort of the story behind it. It's like he goes way too hard on it. And it like it looks incredible, but it was like incredibly uncomfortable or painful for him to, to do. <laughs> He's dedicated, even when he is doing yellow face a couple days, uh, a couple weeks, months later. God, what? A couple years later. I don't know what th- what this podcast is called. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of like some of the shadows involved, uh, there's a lot of really great shadow stuff in this movie Mm. um we talked about the sort of underlit uh catacombs sequences but also um there's a really cool shot uh as some of the phantoms murders are being revealed where uh there's like a stagehand who's kind of turning this big wheel yeah. Uh, to kind of raise up a door or a curtain. curtain. can't exactly yeah. tell what it is. Um, and so you're seeing the curtain, the, the silhouette of the curtain, or the shadow of the curtain, raising in the same shot behind him. So every like all of this kind of drama is unfolding behind the camera. And, um, and as the shadow of the curtain raises, it reveals the shadow of a hanging corpse. Oh. Uh, which is so good. <laughs> yeah. I I was I think I might have like paused the movie just to like admire that shot. I was just like, "Oh, so good." Yeah, really well composed, really good reveal for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Maybe one of the the better uses of the shadows I feel like I've seen in in anything, honestly. It was uh it was great. Um there's a, there's a really great shot. So right after uh Christine sees his, his spooky face. He lets her go, kind of, and is a big jerk about it. Um, and then we get this this section of the movie that's shot in two-strip Technicolor. It's pretty cool. Um, and the Phantom is, like, at a, a ball at the Opera House wearing this big red cloak. And uh, there's a, a great bit where he's up on the... He's, like, Christine is up on the roof, and the Phantom is, like, spying on her. And the Phantom is, like, hanging off of a gargoyle, wearing this big red cloak that's, like, billowing in the wind. Incredible shot. Oh, man. What? The version that I watched did not have the color in really? that scene. Yeah. I I thought that the only, at least on the Blu-ray, the only version that has the color in that scene, I think, is the 1929 version. Oh, weird. Um, uh maybe you found some kind of composite of some other prints or something, but mine was like, uh, a, 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 just a scan of a 16 millimeter, like tinted and toned mm-hmm. version. Yeah. I mean, that's how most of the movie is, but yeah, there's that, just that one section that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's two strip for like the ins, the inside part. And then when he's up on the roof, it's, it looks like it's like hand painted color. It has oh, that sort of sloppier looking, uh, you know, come not, coming out off the lines a little bit um but uh this isn't some pate color uh accuracy no yeah um yeah i'm I'm surprised that that's not in because i think whatever version of i watched was maybe a different blu-ray release of it i don't know that's a whole Hmm. 
that's a whole rabbit hole to go down. A lot of yeah, a lot of traps and and yeah. sequ- and chambers that the Phantom has built or has like re uh on a reclaimed in his discovery of old torture chambers. This is this is a reclaimed Paris. torture chamber. <laughs> Uh, four hundred dollars a night on Airbnb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, one of them is the Room of Many Mirrors, a torture chamber, it, like an old torture chamber. Uh, so, uh, Christine's boyfriend and a, an undercover cop who has been investigating the Phantom for months. Uh, they finally are trying to trying to catch him, and they end up falling into the Room of Many Mirrors, which is. Uh, quite a title uh in the uh in the book uh i think this scene is not described or this room is not described that way because i thought you know it was this very capitalized like room of many mirrors Mm. a a well-known thing but in the book it's like uh this is this is a room that's similar to those funhouse mirror rooms where you can't see where you're going uh the phantom actually invented those but you don't know that (laughs) (laughs) uh (laughs) Uh, so the the phantom has his own twist on on the uh the mirror maze which is uh that he can crank up the heat in there uh so much that it uh, almost kills people yeah uh, and, and there's a there's a really cool like camera effect to show that i think it's like just double exposure of flames but it's like it kind of adds this weird kind of shimmer because of the double exposure to things um which was really uh i don't know it was it was subtle and it it, but it gave a real kind of like visual indication of just the heat in this room being cranked way up and of course the the good guys end up escaping and they escape into another uh trap Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) where where he's flooding the room and then and they're having to uh, the classic kind of scene of them kind of swimming to the um, top yeah. and then <laughs> getting their last amount of air that they can. Yeah. But yeah, eventually uh the some kind of d- a disgruntled mob uh is able to find the phantom and they've got they've got the classic torches and, and yeah. all that kind of thing. Uh and they are there to avenge one of the kind of random stage hands that mm-hmm. the, the phantom has killed <laughs> uh as a as a measure of his threats uh which it's it's cool to see kind of like these movies or or stories like this uh they have sometimes a lot of collateral damage uh and in many stories you're kind of trained to only care about the principal characters Mm -hmm. but in this movie it's like there is this character that is barely named and was just a random person that the phantom killed uh and his brother is the one who ends up you know, rallying mm-hmm. the, the mob to, yeah. to end the phantom. Uh, and they chase him down. As you were talking about, they chase him down the streets of Paris. That's a really cool scene. Uh, it feels mm-hmm. really like dynamic and quick of, uh, of this chase scene. And they, uh, they surround him and they beat him up and throw uh, him in a river or a canal. Yeah. <laughs> Raising the possibility for a uh, sequel. Oh. Uh, Did he survive in the water? <laughs> um, which I don't think is in the book, right? Doesn't the book have a different ending? I don't know. Oh, well. 
guess we'll find out. I just the only thing I know about the book is that I look I control F for room of many mirrors <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then read a passage from there. Cut now about this mirror room. Pretty cool movie. Not like Yeah. Didn't blow me away, but I was like definitely as like a lunchy vehicle, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um I see why this is like the thing he's probably the most well remembered for. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I had, like, of the overall quality, uh, how much it grabbed me and everything mm-hmm. like that, I, I feel like I I was finding myself thinking the same thing when I was watching this. It's like, we're now, I think we're now in the era where, uh, you know, it's not just some good movies and ones that are just incompetent. Like, there mm-hmm. are well-made movies. You're just like, yeah, that was good. Yeah. You know, it's a good movie. <laughs> Yeah, well it's done. Not, uh, not mind blowing. You don't have to talk about it forever, but it's it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Watch, watch it if you like. Yeah. You know, <laughs> cool movie. We could talk about a movie that really did blow me away. Uh, a movie that I thought was, uh, I, I think, earns its place in the hallowed halls of of legendary films, which is Battleship Potemkin. Mm. I mean, uh, the the big daddy of this year, I would say. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think so. Um, certainly, you know, the most famous movie from this year, one mm-hmm. of the most famous silent films. Uh, this is the second film from Sergei Eisenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had made, he'd come from the theater and he had made one short and then one previous movie called Strike uh, that came out the same year. Uh, but Battleship Potemkin, I watched Strike as well, but Battleship Potemkin is just leagues ahead mm. of kind of anything that I've seen so far. I mean, yeah, like, it, it sticks out for sure. I feel like we, we tend to try and resist these established narratives of what is important mm-hmm. in film history and what, uh, you know, what is this revolutionary thing? Or at least we don't try and resist them actively as much as try and look at these things uh, clearly mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, come up with our own interpretations and not uh, succumb to, you know, the established narrative of what are the important movies, but yeah. Holy moly, this movie is uh, it's like a huge step ahead. I think in, uh, in presentation, in emotional engagement, in editing, in style. It's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. This movie's so good. <laughs> I think, too, uh, it, like... I don't know if there's, like, a lot of individual things that this movie necessarily is doing that hasn't been done before. It's mm-hmm. the fact that it's using them all in conjunction and all with real intent. I feel like that that's kind of what stuck out to me with it is it's like yeah even a lot of the kind of the more forward thinking like editing techniques and things like that in it are like they're not this movie isn't sort of like breaking through any massive barriers in terms of like the individual technical things it's doing it's more that it's just like this movie just feels better than uh and by better i just mean it 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 um I think it's using all these tools that have been building up over the last several years of filmmaking and it's just putting them all to like the best possible use. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I think it helps a lot that this movie is very focused in its aims. Mm-hmm. Uh, it being a propaganda movie. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, what comes out of that is its ability to um, say, like, what am I doing at every moment? Uh, and how can I emphasize that the best? Uh, so, like, yeah, like you're saying, there there isn't necessarily any individual thing that this movie has done before, except take these kind of things that have been played with a little bit, like, um, like close, like this movie has way more and way more effective close-ups than much of what we've seen mm-hmm. so far. Uh, it's got shots which are fairly like metaphorical um, of, of the moment, but it's, it's got all this really quick editing. So it will hop to these shots that get a vibe across and then and then go back to what was happening mm-hmm. and it's it's been done before but it's so effective in here because uh it knows what it's doing with every shot mm. if we we're to look at something like kino eye from last year uh, a lot of that kind of quick cutting felt somewhat unmotivated unmotivated mm-hmm. uh but this there are individual shots that are not necessarily telling you any new information, but they're giving you, they're contributing thoughtfully to the feeling of the Mm -hmm. scene. Yeah. That is actually a really good way of putting it. I think. Well, had you, had you seen this movie before? Oh yeah. Plenty of times. It had been a while though. Same. Uh, It it had been long enough that I forgot how good it is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I like this movie more watching it this time than I think I ever have. Me too. Probably because I was able to watch it in like greater context and like I appreciated the things it was doing a lot more. Mm-hmm. One of my like early uh things in in college was I had to recut this movie to like Me too. <laughs> tell a different story. It was just like do something with it. The the thing I tried to do is I tried to make it into a pirate movie, which was uh not the most inspired choice, I feel like. Um I think the most interesting thing I did was I took there's a shot early on of like the the captain of the of the battleship sort of looking through binoculars, and then I took that shot and a different shot of a bunch of boats, and I put like the binocular mask over it. Oh, nice! <laughs> Several other people in the class, I think, did much more interesting things with it. Um, like the, the I feel like the one that I I there are two that I want to talk about. One is that uh, my friend Cody Jackson who might be a future guest on the show Ooh. did one that I didn't even know that he had done this at the time, but the teacher showed it as like an example of how to do, how to do this assignment. Right. And it was so good that I actually, for a moment, I, I didn't remember it wasn't actually part of the movie. I was like, when does that scene happen? And then I was like, Oh no, that isn't actually in the real movie. But he took, uh, there's a shot of like the priest on the ship. He's got this great face. Uh, and there's footage where he's sort of like tapping a, a, a cross in his hand. Mm-hmm. The the re-edit of it was that every time he like the the cross hit his palm, it cut to like a scene of violence, like someone being shot or like a building exploding or like oh. this sort of stuff. And it was like, ah, oh, the, the violence done in the name of religion. You know, this was all inferred from just the sort of like sequence of, of edits. 
And that was the one that, like, the teacher showed us, like, this is the best one that anyone's ever done. And then I didn't find out until years later that my friend had made that one. <laughs> and then the other one is someone, I think, probably just as a joke, took uh, the shots of them, like, cleaning the cannons and put, like, sultry, like, suggestive music over it. Um, which is such a dumb thing, but is, I think, showed a much greater sort of like like i think it's a much better re-edit than what i did where i like tried to make this like pirate action scene out of it where it's like this is super simple they're just taking a bunch of shots that are sort of like vaguely suggestive once you put like silly music over them um but it's in terms of like taking something and re re-editing it and recontextualizing it i think that actually was one of the better examples that i saw in class I uh, I guess I took the same class and got the same assignment as you mm-hmm. at a different time. Yeah. Uh, because I also I didn't I didn't know that I didn't remember that it was specifically Battleship Potemkin that we had to do this assignment on. I just know that I just remembered that I did it with this. Mm-hmm. But um, as you're describing all of this, it all feels very much in line with uh, this kind of Soviet style of editing that mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing come together of. Um, thinking about the associations within the edit mm-hmm. uh so it's a, it's a really thematically appropriate that uh that the professor who who was it that assigned this for you camillo ross camillo okay somebody else must have just used his uh his uh i don't know <laughs> if he came up then. with that uh assignment or whatever i think that was just what the class was uh i took an editing class at dcc with a different professor but um and it had the same assignment, but uh, I, I think it gets at some of the same ideas that the Russians are playing with mm-hmm. it, lately, uh, with Kuleshov and uh, and Vertov and, mm-hmm. and and such. Thinking about the nature of the relationship between shots and how to contextualize emotion within that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really cool. The stuff that you're talking about. What I did was um, I re-edited the movie to be a kaiju movie oh uh there are a lot of shots in this movie of people running from things or pointing off screen yeah and like looking even kind of looking up and pointing off screen (laughs) going oh my god look at that thing uh so i i spliced a bunch of that stuff together to make it seem like there was a big monster yeah (laughs) great uh i guess back to the actual movie right (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, not a monster movie or a pirate movie, uh, though there is some it's a mutiny criticism movie. of religion in here. Yes, it is. It is a mutiny movie. Uh, it is set. Uh, it is based on the true story that is uh, kind of happening on the eve of the Russian mm-hmm. Revolution, um, and there are uh in the broad strokes there are a bunch of sailors on on a battleship called Potemkin and they are getting fed this kind of rotten disgusting meat uh and and just terrible food by by their superiors uh and they're they're saying like how can you how can you feed us this food like look there's maggots in it and they they call the ship's doctor up, and he's just like, uh, th- "These are these are fine. Just wash them off. Yeah, you know? <laughs> just scrape the maggots off. It'll be fine." 
more and more disrespect that they're getting from their superiors uh who are very like clearly kind of meant to be the bourgeoisie um and kind of act in this uh way of how the, they're they're controlling the lives of the workers and treating them like dirt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they become they they make these plans to kind of band together and uh, kind of show their solidarity as workers. In this case, they are in the military, but there's a lot of parallels in this movie between the worker and owner mm-hmm. uh, dynamic. Um, and so when the mutiny is effectively a military strike, what they're mm. doing in this movie. And I think that if you were to compare it to his previous movie, Strike, in Strike, it portrays the bourgeoisie as uh, like bumbling and like foolish. Mm. Uh, they're, they're just these like rich fat cats who uh, are, you know, just silly and stupid in in their wealth but in in this in battleship potemkin they're genuinely menacing and and threatening yeah uh this movie really makes an emotional case uh more than anything else for what is happening uh there's there's like intellectual stuff going on there's you know allegory and and whatnot but i think what's so powerful about this movie and why it grabs you so much is that like you feel for what's happening and you care about what's happening because it like you're watching people getting killed that are trying to do the right thing for like not accepting that they're going to eat like maggoty meat, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think it, I think it's very effective in that way. I, I honestly have not seen many movies being this like emotionally gripping mm. uh, just, just from like, the kind of broad strokes of what's happening being told so well. I think it, it does such a good job of like focusing on like reaction shots. I feel like there's a lot more, like you were saying, there's a lot of close-ups in this and a lot of like, a lot of scenes play out instead of in like these like big wide master shots. Like a lot of silent movies tend to do a lot yeah. of the scenes in this tend to cut between like close-ups of individual people, you in know, in a space or in a room. Um, there's a lot of yeah just like faces reacting to things um it really kind of like puts you into i don't know the this movie gets subjective very well i feel like a lot of yeah a lot of the other things we've seen tend to be a bit more objective and sort of like here's a scene it's theatrical in that way right where it's like you can see all the characters they're acting out in the scene we're observing it's kind of fly on the wall whereas this movie really kind of feels like it's putting you into the into the action or into the emotion in a much kind of more uh, I don't know yeah subjective way yeah um and in addition to like some of the other formal stuff going on in this movie there are so many amazing compositions in this mm. in this oh yeah like there are hundreds of shots in this movie like way more shots in in this movie than most other movies and almost all of them 
have some like really interesting angle or like shadow being cast or like object in the frame that's creating like an interesting shape like it's like he can't resist making really cool compositions with every shot Mm -hmm. Uh, and you could you could pull almost any of these shots out and they're just beautiful individually yeah i it's funny because i rewatching this i was like I had such kind of flashbacks to just like scrubbing through parts of the movie and like picking individual shots out that I wanted to like mm-hmm. use and re-edit. So it's like there's sections of this movie that I remember super, super well because I had to like <laughs> go through them with a comb and like take, you know, individual frames out here and there and things like that. But um, yeah, this movie is, is a, a visual masterclass kind of. It is like... Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this movie's famous for a reason. It's real good. Yeah. So the officers on the ship uh, are basically kind of call it, they call everyone up to the front and they are to the bow of the boat. And there's once again, this, this really cool shot being framed by the turrets of mm, the boat. Yeah. Uh, where with the, with all of the soldiers standing in between them and, uh, they say, whoever whoever likes the food that we've got, step forward. And all of the class traders and, um, <laughs> and, and officers and weenies step forward. Uh, and they're like, okay, great. You're the ones who we aren't going to kill. Uh, so pretty much all of the crew is about to get murdered over insubordination mm-hmm. because they're... Uh, not happily eating uh, gross food. There uh, is a primary character who I'm forgetting his name. Is it Vakulinchuk? Vakulinchuk. Vakulinchuk is the kind of principal person who is organizing all of the uh, workers or Mm -hmm. uh, the crew is behind the mutiny. Uh, And he says okay, now's the time, basically. And as a group of soldiers is put under a blanket about to just be blindly shot at, he yells to the people shooting, like, these are your brothers. Like, yeah. you can't, you can't do this. Like, you're, you, and they, like, you can't just kill these people over nothing. And they hesitate for a second. And in that hesitation, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And they... Oh, great scene. <laughs> They uh, they start uh, capturing and throwing the officers off the boat or killing them, uh, and eventually there's a there's a scuffle in 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 one of the rooms of the ship and uh, Vakulin Chuck is killed, mm-hmm. and he becomes this uh, martyr mm-hmm. later on eventually they're able to take over the entire boat and there's like a scolding priest there too mm-hmm. uh i guess just in a moment of we don't like religion yeah. man um that they knock on the stairs yes yeah <laughs> he's like an old man and they just like push him down the stairs <laughs> and it seems like a little brutal but also he's uh being a jerk so <laughs> i guess he deserves it um eventually they succeed and they raise up a red flag uh for communism <laughs> <laughs> and that's the one um 
hand-painted part of the movie is the red right. flag. The yeah. rest of it is just straight up black and white. Uh, so we got a bit of a uh, Schindler's List kind of thing going on. Uh, or or Sin City. Which, I mean, um, at this point, I'm just realizing it's a, that's just a silent movie thing. Like, there's a lot of kind of selective color use. For um, sure, for Much sure. more so than I ever realized. So, Yeah. Uh, Vakul and Chuck dies, and they bring the boat back to shore uh, as triumphant workers' heroes. They tell the story of what happened, and this kind of heroic uh, group of sailors who had overthrown their masters. And a lot of this uh, is happening at the same time that kind of revolutionary activity is happening on the mainland. Mm -hmm. uh, And the people on the boat were inspired by that. Uh, And so they tell the story of what happened on the boat and they make a memorial on shore for Vakulinchuk. Uh, his body is, they put his body in a tent and then people line up really, really far to go and pay their respects to him. Uh, I was watching this with a friend of mine who uh, is Russian mm-hmm. and uh, she was reading out all of the, <laughs> all of the Russian intertitles as they uh, uh, yeah. went by. Uh, and I also put a, a communist hat i have on her uh, <laughs> just so we could because i'm always chasing that immersive 4d experience with, there you go with every movie <laughs> but uh she was saying that this scene uh reminded her of uh lenin and how uh people will line up to mm. see lenin's body and pay pay their respects to him which i'm sure is like uh, intentional i don't i mean i don't know yeah. but like that's you know very topical for when this movie was made Exactly. This movie came out shortly after Lenin died. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if they had like a kind of formalized memoriam, mausoleum situation. I don't know if the mummy was ready yet. Yeah. (laughs) If the Lenin mummy was ready yet. But uh, it it does have some similarities. Mm -hmm. And I guess it it speaks also to this kind of Soviet way of... um, having these kind of individual heroes that we worship for their qualities of, you know, revolutionary spirit Mm. or whatever, which is kind of interesting in this movie because part of the point that it's making, I think with the way that it's being presented is this kind of collectivist point where Vakulinchuk is like one of the main named characters, but he dies very quickly. And there are also a lot of other characters who are not named and we don't focus on them very much. There isn't like a main character of this movie, like at all, Mm. uh, which is very uncommon. I think like we don't have like a point of view character. It is, it is following ideas and groups of people Mm -hmm. because it's, it's trying to make this point about like solidarity and collectivism. Yeah. Yeah. For like a a narrative like this, it is true that, yeah, it, it's it is unusual in that respect and even now like movies tend to have like one central point of view character whereas yeah you're right this doesn't really and yet it still works it still feels like you're able to kind of get caught up in it it doesn't it's not as distancing as it might come across which i was surprised by honestly Mm -hmm. like I, i feel like 
you know, there's a reason why a lot of movies follow a principal character or a couple characters yeah. is because like they offer you a viewpoint into what's happening. But this movie grips you so much with just the re- like the specifics of what is happening mm-hmm. that uh, I-, I think it still works just mm-hmm. as well, if not better. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I thought about naturally this movie is like probably one of the most sort of things it's most famous for is it's editing and it's sort of like it's place in like the the soviet school of of montage editing and, and that sort of thing i was less montage than i think i either remembered or thought it would be uh-huh in terms of like most of the editing is pretty most of the scenes play out within like a single time frame like there's not a lot of weird wild sort of like playing with time or space it's like a scene plays out in a single space among many different characters and there's a lot going on but it's like it isn't necessarily playing with time or space in the way that i think of with like montage editing how it's like kind of throws that out the window and i feel like this film doesn't do that as much as some of like the later 20s like man of the movie camera is just like I feel like Ziga Vertov is going further in that direction of just like abandoning space, time and space, spatial or like t- temporal continuity, I guess. But this movie is so the editing is so much about creating like pacing and tension, and like yeah, like cutting between like creating like stillness by like cutting around to like a bunch of things, even though it's a quick edits, it's like creating the sense of like. I feel like early on in the movie, there's such a sense of like bottled energy that's happening where it's like, yeah, anticipation. There's all this stuff that's just building, 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 and then it just kind of explodes. And that happens a couple times throughout the movie where it just like will build and build and build and build tension until it's kind of released by something. Um, and that's something that is, we've seen a bit of that with like the, the, you know, the, the sort of woman trapped in a room movies that that are are about kind of creating the sense of tension and and pacing but it's like wait what are you talking about women trapped in a room the you know the dw griffith uh classic oh yeah yeah, yeah. uh you know um, lone dale operator uh yeah suspense suspense you know one one, one of those the the (laughs) the medicine cabinet or whatever um the medicine bottle (laughs) worst one (laughs) Rewatching this movie with an eye towards like how it's kind of pushing editing forwards. I it was less montagey than I, I had sort of thought it would be. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like using. I think what's special about it is that it's using some of these principles with a very focused purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's part of what I my issue with Vertov movies, is, at least as far as I've seen them or remember them, is that they don't seem focused. Right. Uh, uh, but this this movie is taking those ideas and then using them very deliberately to tell, uh, to tell stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and using the editing to emphasize the emotion of stories. Yeah. I feel like Zyger Vertov is playing with the form probably more so than Sergei Eisenstein is, Mm -hmm. but Sergei Eisenstein is actually like doing narrative stuff with it. And so it, it feels a lot more impactful and you're able to get emotionally invested in it in a way that Ziegler top stuff is just sort of like neat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a point where we move to 
the most famous mm. part of this movie. Yeah. Which is the Odessa Steps sequence. The most famous stairs in all of cinema. Until we got to Joker. Oh, God. 2019. No, I, I still think this takes a cake. <laughs> oh, God. How does this even get set up? After the mutiny and they take over the battleship, the, I guess this would be the, the army of the Russian Empire gets sent, sent in to kind of quell the, the rebellion or the mutiny. And uh, there are all these people who are sort of like camped out on the steps and they get sort of cornered. They, they send a bunch of soldiers down from the top of the steps and start kind of shooting into the crowd and chasing them down. And they, there's this kind of mad stampede down the stairs. And then when they get to the bottom of the stairs, there's more soldiers at the bottom of the stairs. And they're, they're kind of trapped between them. And they all get massacred. Yeah, yeah. And it's all, it's pretty much all like civilians who are getting killed. Yeah, it's, it's all like who... old women, children, baby carriages. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's making it's making this kind of another sort of emotional case for uh, the revolution mm. in like showing the kind of monstrosity of the old empire. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this scene has a lot of motion. It also has a lot of quick cutting. It's got a lot of violence mm-hmm. in it. Um. This, uh, it also is very, it does a really good job of suggesting the violence without explicitly showing it, at least. True. But it also shows some pretty yeah, it does. Violence. It does both, yes. <laughs> uh, probably the most famous shot from this movie is from this scene, uh, which is a woman who kind of either gets shot in the eye or like has some kind of like shrapnel that gets in her eye. And there's, she's like clutching her face and there's all this blood coming down from her eye. Uh, this is during this scene. It's a, a poor old woman. The other kind of famous mm-hmm. shot from this scene is... Uh, the the oft-copied <laughs> or homage. <laughs> the oft-copied, and honestly, I think it goes on a little too long. And like it's trying to build that tension mm-hmm. like this movie is good at. But then... Uh, it maybe pushes it a little too far and becomes a little silly, but maybe that's just in retrospect. Uh, uh, the scene of the baby carriage that is <laughs> tilting right on the edge yeah. of falling down the stairs. Uh, and is it going to fall? Oh no, there's a baby in there. What happens? And then the carriage fall- rolls down the stairs and, and crashes. Yeah, uh, rolls down the stairs as like people are fleeing and being shot. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think it's still a pretty great scene like it's it's very effective yeah it's it's good i just like it pushed it a little far for me to think it was like a little silly but right it's also like it's one of those things where once it's been in like the simpsons it's kind of harder to take it seriously (laughs) as like a real dramatic scene but it's like like most things that have been paired in the simpsons it's like yeah you go back to it it works in its original context the first time that i saw the shining was at the uh the alamo draft house Mm -hmm. and i was watching the pre-show before that and they were playing the shining of the the shining (laughs) from the simpsons and i was honestly kind of mad that they did that because i uh the the scene in the shining where uh jack is like losing his mind and uh chasing wendy up the stairs with the the Mm -hmm. baseball bat or the axe or whatever uh 
and he's like making these weird faces and noises and it's like creepy but like it's just on the edge of silly mm-hmm. uh <laughs> it's it's riding a fine line and i think having just watched the simpsons episode where it pushes it over that right. line kind of ruined that scene yeah for me. yeah damn um, uh but we'll get to the shining yeah uh, <laughs> as this massacre is happening uh it kind of gets back to the people on the ship uh that that the russian empire is kind of doing all this horrendous stuff to try and quell the rebellion so they turn the turrets of their ship in toward the shore and they blow up the house of the uh the governor or whoever yeah uh the the head honcho in charge of the government there are some stone lions uh some some surprised lions yeah it is it, it, in kind of the most conspicuous usage of montage uh right the, yeah the the lions kind of stand up and are shocked at uh at what is happening as the the house around them explodes mm-hmm. um and uh so the soldiers end up kind of uh uh i don't know taking over and yeah. uh and then the the glorious communists win. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think some of the editing in this movie is a bit sloppy from modern, from like with modern standards. I do think this movie does a good job of like, not every new shot is necessarily showing you more information, but like the repetition of them is really important and that sort of thing. But there's there's. There's occasional parts in this movie. I'm like, just because you can't edit doesn't mean you have to. Um, <laughs> As an editor, were you uh, a little like, tone it down? <laughs> well, it's like, I, I I see what it's trying to do. And I think it, it's mostly effective in that thing of like, the the mere fact of the amount of edits is like creating this sense of pacing or this sense of rhythm. Um, And yeah, there uh, there's a reason I think this movie is like still taught in school to like show good use of editing. Um, I don't know. Like if I had to, if I had to come up with something negative to say about this movie, I'm like, well, some of it's maybe a little sloppy, but that's only really taking it from like a modern, uh, with modern eyes. Still better than taken three or whatever. I think that also, if you compare it to a lot of other movies at the time, if you were from the time, if you were to look at, the editing that they're doing like this is doing so much editing Mm -hmm. and uh if you're to look at some of the editing in in these more plainer movies uh you could say like that it's sloppy in certain ways too uh but i don't know yeah i like i like this um yeah a lot uh i i should say actually that um uh I might have misstated the scene where the red flag was shown. I think that's more toward the end. Oh, right. uh, but uh, so don't don't come correcting us uh, <laughs> unless unless you want to hop in the YouTube comments and increase our uh, engagement. There you go. <laughs> Please correct us. Uh, yeah. No, I I, I think this movie uh, is real good. Yeah. Hot take. Bowser Potemkin. Good movie. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> What should we hop to next? Let's hop to uh, our old, old standby, 
Mr. Charles Chaplin. Charles, when he's being formal and making a drama, yeah. and and Charlie. I mean, it, it is uh, true to he, his friends. He is always credited <laughs> as a director as Charles, uh, but I like to make the distinction sometimes. I mean, this we're ta- we're talking about the Gold Rush. The Gold Rush, which is, as stated in the early intertitle, a dramatic comedy. Yeah. I like this. I, 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 um, I found it, I mean, it's, it's often hard to talk about slapstick comedy movies, though there mm. is a lot more kind of, uh, narrative stuff going on in this one than previous ones. Uh, but I actually found myself gripped enough that I did not take any notes. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> which is, uh, which is a good sign, but we'll see how that turns out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, this is a pretty, this, I think this is a pretty famous one of his movies it's like it's up there yeah in the in the canon um i'd never seen i'd never seen this one i hadn't either and this this is the first comedy that he's made since the kid Mm -hmm. Uh, it's been a couple years since he's done comedy yeah and i think i think this movie does a kind of a better job of balancing the comedy and the drama than the kid i think the kid is like it's very funny where it's very dramatic and i feel like it's a little yeah, it, it felt a little flip floppy at times. Um, whereas this, I think, does a better job of kind of like seeding both throughout the whole thing, where it's like scenes play out and they're they're kind of simultaneously funny and a little sad or a little dramatic. <laughs> yeah, he's a real beat down guy in this. <laughs> yeah, there's like a lot of people who are just exceedingly mean to him. In oh this yeah, movie. <laughs> um, for sure. I don't know this movie felt a little bit less, I guess, kind of. Uh, modeling or I don't know. I think there's there's times in the kid where I'm like, all right, we get it. It's sad. It's a little overdone. Yeah, it's it's like baby's first attempt at drama. You know, right. which isn't to say there's not good stuff in that movie, but um, I think I I overall I think of of the Chaplin movies that I've seen that are sort of like trying to trying to kind of thread this needle between comedy and drama. I think this was the most successful one that I've seen so far. I would agree. uh, But also I think that like, it wasn't as funny as other movies, which is maybe part Mm. of what's going on. Right. It's like, there were some real good laughs in this movie that I, I I laughed. I thought it was Mm -hmm. funny at points, but like, overall it doesn't feel like you're watching like a laugh a minute movie, you know? No. Yeah. And it's definitely compared to, like, the other, like, the Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd movies. Like, those movies are so, like, laugh every second. Like, yeah, the, the, the amount of jokes happening per second in those is, like, mind-boggling. <laughs> um, whereas this is, yeah, taking it, taking it a little slow. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just, so this, this movie is about Chaplin's sort of, like, classic tramp character going off to the north of alaska to make his fortune in the gold rush hence the title and the tr- the tramp really just like is a character who transcends time and space pretty much and he's he's just an elemental who, who yeah. can appear wherever <laughs> i did think the kind of reveal of him there's sort of this intro of like setting up how people are like going out into the into the mountains alaska to, to find gold and you see all these sort of you know explorers and people like climbing up mountains and things like that and then it's like and then the reveal of 
Charlie Chaplin just kind of like waddling off the screen on a mountaintop in his completely yeah. normal <laughs> like costume was was very funny. Yes. And, and waddle is a good word for the way that yeah. he moves. <laughs> um and uh and yeah, the first like chunk of this movie is him kind of uh trying to get out of the get out of a blizzard. Um and him and another prospector end up finding this uh this cabin and they're all kind of like the guy who's already in the cabin is a is a, a criminal who's on the on the lamb and they're all kind of competing for who can stay in the cabin with a lot of like gags and there's like whenever they open the door the wind comes in and like pushes them out yeah. the, the door gags got to me those were good i enjoyed yeah, all the door yeah. gags <laughs> I was kind of surprised when I was watching this at um, how long they spent in the cabin. Yeah. Uh, like, I was initially thinking, like, that, that almost the entire movie, this is going to be a Hateful Eight situation. They're just yeah. snowed in for the entire movie. Uh, but eventually they do get out, but they spend a lot of time. Um, and there's, like, some menace in this movie and kind of like fear in a way because you know uh the tramp is this very innocent character who is just trying to get by and he's surrounded by people who uh are so hungry or villainous that they want to eat him or uh (laughs) or kill him a little little light cannibalism humor (laughs) there's a really good scene and like i feel like this movie is also the the genesis of I i think maybe buster keaton is the most direct predecessor of Looney Tunes, but there are some mm. like Looney Tunes ass like things in this movie. Uh, I mean, uh, I... including, <laughs> in- including this, this scene uh, where one of the characters is dreaming about, uh, about eating Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Uh, and, and he transforms, he kind of like fades in his mind into being a giant chicken. Yeah. Uh, which is, very cartoony and, and fun. It's it's something that I will pretty much always find funny is when someone is really hungry in a movie or a cartoon <laughs> and they like hallucinate someone into a giant piece of food. Yeah. Which this is like he's hallucinating Troy Chaplin into just a full live chicken. Just a giant yeah. chicken man. Good chicken acting too. Like yeah. the way that the I don't know if it's if it's Charlie in the costume or not, but mm-hmm. like whoever's in the costume is doing a great job kinda emulating the movements of a chicken yeah yeah um and yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of good like good little jokes thrown in here there's uh a bit where charlie chaplin eats one of his shoes um which i i think i remember hearing that he like made the shoe out of licorice or something like that or he like he like made this edible shoe that he eats in the scene really makes a meal out of this scene you know what i mean um <laughs> he does though like it's really all the business of him sort of like taking the shoe out of the pot that's boiling and sort of like taking it apart and like picking the nails like out of it that are holding the shoe together yeah. <laughs> and there's like really good just subtle jokes of you know he's he's boiling the shoe so that he can eat the leather of the shoe because he's they're all so hungry and he's like kind of using like like picking the 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 nails through his teeth mm-hmm. as if they're bones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is, it's, yeah, it's just solid gag work. 
this section of the movie does kind of feel reminiscent of like the earlier like one or two real comedy movies of just like here is a location we're gonna do all the jokes for this location we can and then move on yeah in yeah in a way like you know this i don't know this this cabin and prospector and cannibalism stuff is maybe the first half hour like maybe 40 minutes of the movie Mm -hmm. Uh, and like the plot proper kind of kicks in right. once they get out yeah. of the of the shack. Uh, yeah, they get they get into into town in like this this you know prospector town. Um, oh, that in this section in the cabin, there's a great another great just like visual gag is uh, you see like the uh, the tramp shoes hanging off the bed. And you think that he's sleeping one way, and then he he reveals he's actually wearing the shoes on his hands, so he can he can look to see if he's getting snuck up on. Um, yeah, just a great, funny visual reveal there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, then he he, get, he he gets out of the cabin, he goes to town, and we meet uh, one of our principal characters, Georgia, who's the the female lead of this movie, and definitely stuck out to me as like a kind of an atypical like romantic lead for a Chaplin movie in that she kind of sucks. <laughs> like, yeah, she's yeah. not like an ingenue, like hapless, like innocent woman. Who's just trying to like make her way in life. She's like, I don't know. She's a bit more of a, like a vampy character. Yes. And also just like, yeah, just, I don't know. Mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I, I kind of appreciated that just as like something different for these movies because it, it didn't feel like a repeat of a lot of his earlier stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's like an avenue. I think that previously the romantic, you know, object of his films have been kind of the source of uh comedy in that you know or in the way that these slapstick movies work it's like ah i'm trying to impress the lady or mm-hmm. something like that you know uh but here uh the romantic interest is kind of this source of like heaviness and drama she's kind of the antagonist uh, for like a good chunk of the movie i feel like yeah uh, i like she um in some of the more kind of schmaltzy and like maybe overdone scenes of the movie it's like the the tramp or the prospector as he's known in this movie um like basically having some real like incel moments based on on the way that this woman is treating him so he you know she kind of uh dances with him uh as a way of like taunting her boyfriend Mm -hmm. uh and then uh, the tramp quickly falls for her and is like, oh, oh, you wanted to dance me with me? That's that's great. Uh, do you want to come back to my place and uh, I'll I'll, ha- I'll make dinner for you? Um, and she's like, sure, whatever. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then she promptly forgets or doesn't care uh, and then is back with her boyfriend. And uh, and so there's this scene that is uh, built out of the tension of intercutting uh, and also uh, just, yeah, uh, the the kind of stakes that are involved in, in what has been established in the romantic story where he's really hopeful about this person. He 
he really feels for her and so he makes a whole dinner uh for her and her friends uh and he he gets it all prepared in his in his new apartment in uh <laughs> in shack. prospector town his shack in prospector town and there are all of these scenes of her just kind of you know wantonly partying while he is uh getting ready to uh, have a nice dinner and making getting presents yeah. for everybody well this is uh, this is on new year's eve so she's at like a new year's eve party um while he is sort of like preparing this very elaborate dinner i don't know where he got any of he's like he's got nice napkins and candles he's like going all out yeah it's sort of like as the night drags on it's sort of like he's still kind of just waiting there and eventually he just sort of starts, I guess, imagining or not really hallucinating. It's more just like his imagination. Falls, out. Does he fall asleep? I don't remember if he actually falls asleep or not. But he, there's this sort of like fantasy he has of being surrounded by all the people he invited at the table. And he does uh, his famous bread dance with the, the loaves of bread on forks. Yeah, definitely uh, the most famous scene from this movie yeah. and one of the more famous scenes from all of silent film where uh he 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 i mean it's kind of a fun a fun thing it, it is it is very fun and charming i like the bread dance <laughs> uh if you haven't seen it he, he just yeah he takes some forks and puts them in little dinner breads uh whatever you call them little, little tiny loaves and makes them into big cartoon feet and then makes makes them dance yeah uh, to entertain his party guests because he is uh <laughs> he's an incel type that uh that does magic and uh <laughs> and tries to impress people with uh, silly things <laughs> yeah um and so then yeah georgia never shows up and uh she kind of feels bad about it but also not really enough to like i don't know do anything about it yeah um and then there's this uh there's this bit where she writes like a love note to her boyfriend and signs it um and then uh she says also sorry for last night right yeah uh and then the the boyfriend plays a, a very mean prank on on charlie by giving him the note then and being like hey the lady wanted me to give you this note <laughs> this movie is so brutal to yeah him. <laughs> this movie is very like mean to the main character for sure um but so then i guess i uh the the, the guy that he had been stuck in the cabin with comes back and he thinks he's like after him to try to eat him again but then he catches up to him and he just yell because he just yells the cabin and it's like giant letters um, that's something that we've noticed a bit more of where it's like giant letters and in intertitles to signify something being loud and it being really small, like really small type to be yeah. like something far away or really quiet, which I think is fun. This is a big, this is a big typeface episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but so then he ends up going back to the cabin to get, uh, to, you know, to get his fortune. Because the guy has discovered yeah. gold nearby. Um, and, uh, yeah, because they they were friends with each other and didn't eat each other. 
uh, and and because the Charlie helped this guy uh, find where the gold was in relation to the cabin. Uh, I guess we, we, they they end up becoming uh, fabulously wealthy. Yeah. Well, there's um, before that there is the great bit of the the cabin hanging off the edge of the cliff, which is like yes. teetering, balancing on the edge of the cliff. That they have to deal with <laughs> another another Looney Tunes moment. For Very sure. much. Uh, yeah. Sh- I shan't skip over that because uh, <laughs> the the um. It's it's they fall asleep in the cabin. They wake up and the wind has blown it so much that uh, the cabin has moved and it's yeah as you were saying teetering off the edge of a cliff. Um, but they don't know, so they're like walking around the cabin and it's like causing it to like like tilt tilt <laughs> off the edge more and yeah. Um, it's some yeah it's some good like big broad cartoony physical comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, pro- possibly another Simpsons reference here, where uh, in the Mister Plow episode, where his truck goes off the edge of the uh, off the edge of the cliff, and it's hanging there, and then he like turns the dial of the of the of the radio to slightly shift the weight back, <laughs> so that he's back on the road. Uh, feels like a reference to this movie. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how. Uh, how early the sort of like tilting on the edge of a cliff gag came about. This is probably the earliest version of it that I've seen, but I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely an iconic usage. Mm, yeah, they manage to not fall off the cliff, and they get the gold, and they become fabulously wealthy. Um, and one thing that I think is kind of fun with Chaplin's performance throughout this whole movie is like his body language shifts from like low to high status happen a lot where it's like he'll be sort of be you know very sheepish or very like holding himself very small and then something will happen and he'll he'll get this like boost of confidence and he'll suddenly be like carrying himself very confidently and those shifts are always really fun i'm just like you see him just like completely change his body language on a dime um and it's 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 really good um but so that means he's on a boat uh I guess from Alaska to somewhere and a photographer is like, Hey, let's take a picture of you in your, your mining clothes. And so he takes off all his fancy clothes and he puts <laughs> on his tramp costume again. And while he's wearing that, he runs into Georgia again. Who's like trying to take the, take the ship to, you know, find a better life for herself. Um, and then they kind of reconnect and, uh, I don't know, admit their love for each other or whatever. And then she joins him in his portrait and like the, the portrait photographer is trying to take the picture and he's like, hey, quit quit smooching, you're ruining the picture. And he's like, ah, stop it. And he's uh. like, take your, take your picture. Which I thought was like, I, I thought that was a pretty genuinely sweet way to end the movie. Yeah, which is not the way that the re-release ends. Ooh, um, really? The re-release... Um, kind of makes their the 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 re-release acknowledges them seeing each other and reconnecting a bit, but it does not have the romantic end of oh, this movie. It just ends with them like walking off camera. Hmm. It, it, it tones down some of the kind of uh, romantic angle hmm. a little bit, it makes it so it was never really as much of a 
prospect as it uh, mm. as it is in this movie or in this version of the movie. That I think would probably play a bit more realistically, maybe. Like I don't know if the sort of like romantic ending of this movie is particularly earned. Mm-hmm. Um, based on how mean Georgia is to him throughout the entire rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, and then she's sort of like, oh, you're, well, I guess the, the, the point of the ending as it stands in the original one is that, like, she doesn't know that he's fabulously wealthy and she still sort of, like, wants to be with him at the end before she knows that. Um, but yeah, it is, it does feel a bit unearned. Uh, but I, I like the, just that last scene, I think is, is well done. Good old Chaplin movie. Yeah. And we'll get on to our final feature Ooh. of uh, of the week, which is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Jurassic Park 2, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Lost World. Yeah. Uh, no, scratch the Jurassic Park part, but, you know, yeah. we make jokes here. The Lost World. The Lost World. Good, good picture. Uh, yeah. Well, why, why don't you take the lead on this All right, one? Sure. <laughs> uh, Lost World. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, other than King Kong, probably the most famous movie that Willis O'Brien worked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willis O'Brien did not direct this one. Uh, this was directed by Harry O. Hoyt. Not a name I was familiar with, but Willis O'Brien did all of the dinosaur effects, uh, which are very cool. That's what we're here for. Um, and yeah, this is based on the novel by Arthur Conan Doyle. Most famous for creating Sherlock Holmes, but this is probably the thing he's second most famous for. I actually had no idea that he did anything other than Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, he did. Um, we'll might get into it a bit later, but he, he did a whole, like, this book sparked a whole, like, different series of novels and short stories um, about Professor Challenger, which is, I guess, mm-hmm. a character that Arthur Conan Doyle, when he was alive, seemed much more fond of than Sherlock Holmes. He was kind of famously, <laughs> like, didn't really like writing Sherlock Holmes and was annoyed that it was so popular. Um, and, and you can tell that Arthur Conan Doyle likes this work because he appears at the beginning of this yeah, movie. There's a little, a little in, he does a little intro. Um, <laughs> He's like, I'm Arthur Conan Doyle. I wrote this. It's about dinosaurs. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> um... And yeah, so we, we, we meet our, our kind of main lead character, Ed Malone, who's a, a reporter in London, uh, who wants to marry uh, this woman, Gladys, who tells him, I will only marry a man of great deeds and strange experiences. And so she's sort of like, you haven't done enough crazy shit, so I won't marry you. You need to do some crazier shit. Um, and so then he... Uh, takes an assignment to try to uh, look into this Professor Challenger fella who is a an academic in London who is claimed to have discovered a lost world in South America where dinosaurs live. Um, Professor Challenger looks like a Tintin character. He's got this crazy beard and head of hair. <laughs> he does. Um, and uh, he is trying to put together an expedition to go to South America and the sort of the stuffy academics in London are sort of like, oh, this, this, this can never be. And they basically agree to go on an expedition 
just to prove him wrong. Um, and so there's his his sort of like academic rival, uh, Professor Summerlee, who who is the sort of main one being like, I'm going to go on this expedition just to prove that you're a hack. And then there's also this uh, this sort of like, I guess hunter explorer type, uh, uh, Roxton, who also goes on the expedition, and then. Malone has to break into uh, Challenger's house just to kind of get because Challenger hates reporters and but he kind of earns his respect by breaking into his house and uh, slash <laughs> saying that he's a friend of a friend yeah but he he, he proves his uh, his his metal I guess in doing so I mean I guess if I were constantly ridiculed for telling people true stories about dinosaurs uh i would i would probably hate yeah. the press too Un- understandable um but challenger is a very fun character in that he is like a professor and he's like this academic explorer guy but he's also just like this wild crazy man who will like get in fights all the time and like throw chairs <laughs> around a room and so then they they head off and we get a nice cool sort of like map travel shot of like a map and we see like yeah. a little boat traveling down to South America from, from England, which is the first time I've seen that in something a sort of like mm-hmm. proto Indiana Jones map travel <laughs> scene. And they get down to South America. Um, and we sort of are meeting our characters as they're preparing to set out into the, the jungle. There's also right. Uh, another reason why they agree to go on the expedition is because there's been this other explorer who's disappeared maple white and his daughter uh was he was on their last expedition right and uh uh and yeah his daughter is coming along to try and find her dad yeah and that's sort of like they've sort of agreed to do this expedition because it's it's like a rescue it's not just Mm -hmm. an academic thing um and there's sort of a weird love triangle between paula Malone and Roxton, even though Roxton is like a million years old. Um, that was the thing. The decrepit hunter. Yeah, that was the thing that was uh, invented for the film. Paula White doesn't exist in the novel. She was invented by the, uh, the the film. I like the addition of someone who's like emotionally invested in this thing for reasons other than just to prove dinosaurs exist. Like. Mm-hmm. She's kind of an underwritten character, but at the same time, I'm I'm glad that that character exists in this. I think, yeah, she's she's a she's like a good kind of like one of those classic like adventure movie characters of like the the spunky girl who like is like I can you yeah. know I can do everything that the men can do you know, uh, and it's the 20s, so they don't really. I don't know how necessarily feminist this movie is about it, but... it's No, no. It's just, yeah, I think it's just having her participate, for yeah, sure. Yeah. But uh, uh, it is this kind of, like, proto, like, girl power figure. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, they're like, hey, you can vote now. We can also... Oh, yeah, true. Go, go uh, look for dinosaurs. Um, and then the... Uh, so yeah, Professor Summerlee is also there. He's the the, the kind of stuffy academic. Um, yeah, I feel like the the main thing about him is that he sucks. <laughs> it's like <laughs> everyone is like, "Oh, Summerlee, we hate this guy." 
<laughs> I think they, they established that pretty early on with like, we can tell that about him because there's this uh, a cute monkey named Jocko. And he's like, get out of here. I hate this monkey. And it's like, come on. Come on, dude. Don't, don't be hating on the monkey. But as they're traveling to the, so the Lost World is on a, uh, the top of a mountain, a plateau uh, in South America, which is almost definitely based on Mount Roraima, which is a real mountain in South America hmm. that is inspired this story as well as uh, Up. Up is also, I mean, heavily inspired by the Lost World. That, that, yeah, um, that makes sense. <laughs> right. But so as they're sort of traveling through South America, we get a lot of, uh, a lot of like real animal footage, which is pretty cool. And I think actually ends up helping to kind of sell the dinosaur footage because we're seeing all this footage of like alligators and jaguars and stuff. And then once we start seeing dinosaurs, it's sort of like presented in a very similar way. It's all stop motion animation, but it's like filmed in a similar way to how they've been using the real animal footage. And I think that that was like a surprisingly effective way of sort of like grounding the effects of the movie. I thought. In, in addition to all of that, there they use a lot of kind of inventive. Um, I think I think when there are special effects on screen, usually in these movies, uh, it's in this very cordoned off area uh, where, like you know, you can do a double exposure mm-hmm. over a black background or something like that. And they do a lot in this movie to integrate the humans and dinosaurs and like stop motion yeah. dinosaurs into the same shots mm-hmm. in a way where, you know, there's clearly like a line that's yeah. happening like between two shots, but you can't see where that line is and it's not straight. It's, it's yeah, like, it's really well hidden. It's being like covered up by brush, uh, like yeah. in the in the wilderness or whatever. And so, like, I, I can't, I couldn't fully tell like where the two shots were being merged together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it all feels, it sells it really well as being in the same space. It's also just like really showy special effects. Yeah. Wise. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've, I mean, we've talked about Willis O'Brien before he did uh piece of slumber mountain and a couple other like shorts with, with dinosaurs or prehistoric creatures as stop motion animation. But this is big, big dino guy yeah this is definitely the the easily the most ambitious thing that he's done in terms of the effects both in terms of like combining it with live action stuff which is really well done but then just the amount of animation that's in this movie and sort of like how complicated the scenes are kind of um yeah um yeah there's a lot of i mean something that he pays attention to i can tell uh in this and his other films are um, adding this realism to his animated dinosaurs by making them breathe, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is something that would be easy to forget about. But uh, the dinosaurs are always in motion, uh, but it's not this like over-exaggerated motion uh, to like show like, you know, they're bobbing their head. They're not doing a Gertie, the dinosaur, like bobbing their head back. Right. They're not dancing every time. Like, but like even when Gertie was idle, you know, it was um, moving back and forth because it's mm-hmm. like it's got to move. It's animation, right. yeah. But like it's very subtle and naturalistic animation. Yeah, in, in I this. think all the dinosaur behavior feels like it's very sort of like accurate to, I guess, the understanding of what dinosaurs would have acted like at the time. And it's like, I don't know, the dinosaurs in this are really expressive. 
both in terms of their body language and also just like sometimes their like actual faces are really expressive. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, yeah, just like little. There's a lot of little little details in in the animation that really help sell that these are like animals with real behaviors. They're not just sort of like monsters. They're kind of like there's yeah the triceratops like protecting the the young one, like the the baby triceratops, and it's like a lot of just decisions that were put there to help sell that like these are animals that have fully that have interiority you know what i mean like they have <laughs> right uh like their behaviors feel like n- naturally occurring things that animals would do as opposed to it just definitely sort of like, they're not overly personified i guess in that way yeah it definitely feels like it is coming from some close study of real animal behavior mm-hmm. yeah and then and then transposing that onto some yeah really naturalistic well done stop motion animation another thing that i think is really impressive is just having uh multiple stop motion characters on screen doing different things at the same Mm -hmm. time yeah uh this you know requires a lot of coordination and thought and um you know just very deliberate action to be able to do that much complexity on screen at once when you're when you're animating multiple things yeah um and there's a lot of cool dinosaur fights in this movie of different dinosaurs fighting each other yeah yeah um some some cool fight scenes some some bloody action yeah this movie's surprisingly like gory in the dinosaur scenes like yeah (laughs) they will like straight up like rip each other up and there's a lot of blood and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Didn't expect this necessarily. Um, I think I had seen this movie as a kid, like years and years and years ago. But I don't think I, whenever I I had seen it, it was probably a different cut of it. Like it was probably a less complete restoration. Huh. Um, not that I necessarily like remembered scenes being different or anything like that. But whenever I originally saw it, it was long enough ago that it. I don't think this version of it existed yet. Hmm. I like this restoration of it, certainly. Um, Do you notice things that you didn't see before? Not really, no. Like, I definitely remember certain big scenes of it, but I think there were a lot of, particularly the scenes with the, you know, the human characters that I didn't remember as well, but I might have also just not been paying as much attention. Um, Yeah, there's a a bunch of cool dinosaurs in this. There's Allosaurus, there's Triceratopses, Styracosaurus, Brontosaurus, uh, gets called out specifically. Surprisingly, no T Rex. I, I, cause I wonder, cause there's like, there is an Allosaurus that I think gets called out by name, but then there's like a bigger carnivore dinosaur that I'm not sure is just supposed to be a bigger Allosaurus or if it's supposed to be a T Rex, because I see. This is before they knew that T Rex had the two fingers. So then it's like they kind of look the same. But yeah, I mean, I think. For when this movie came out, it was probably pretty, like, on the cutting edge of, like, depictions of dinosaurs based on, like, up-to-date science, which is pretty cool. Yeah. The Brontosaurus is pretty heavily featured. Um, Brontosaurus, I, when I was a kid, there was always the thing of, like, Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus, same dinosaur, just different names. And then I think Uh that got, that got transferred to Brontosaurus doesn't exist, only Apatosaurus is the 
recognized name. And now I think it's at a place where they are considered separate species of dinosaur. They both exist separately. Brontosaurus is one dinosaur, <laughs> Patosaurus is one But, so. What's your favorite dinosaur? I mean, it's probably T-Rex. Like, it's the cool one. I don't know. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like I have a hot take favorite dinosaur. I've always been a Stegosaurus guy. Which is funny because you now live in its its home state. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, the Stegosaurus is the state fossil of of Colorado, is it not? Uh, I don't go around studying state fossils. Well, I thought I saw be... <laughs> a sign when I was there. I was on a hike, and I thought I saw a sign. If I'm remembering correctly, oh yeah, correctly. yeah, you might be right. Yeah, but it's like Stegosaurus, state fossil. I uh. I, I like the Stego boys. I mean, they're great. They got, they got a good shape. Um, there's a Stego in this movie, right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, looking very similar to the one in King Kong. Um, I think King Kong owes a lot to this movie, too. Just this basic kind of structure of explorers going to a, like, a lost world. In that case, an island. In this case, a mountain. Dinosaur. Land. Dinosaur stuff. Yeah. And then, of course bringing something back to the city where it runs amok. Yeah, and let's talk about that, because... Because it's uh, the coolest. Let's let's gloss over the other thing I was going to mention about this movie, which is that it has blackface in it for no reason. Yes. Uh, un- very unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a very cool movie that's, like, marred by some just pointless racism. Uh, I, so I guess we're not skipping over it. But anyway, <laughs> um, they... They escape the plateau. Uh, all these mm-hmm. dinosaurs survived in in this isolated environment because nobody could get off of this giant, this really tall plateau. But there is a dinosaur that falls off and into some mud. Right, the brontosaurus able- is in in the middle of a fight with a, a carnivore. It gets knocked off a cliff and falls into yeah, like a, a, a body of water, and so it survives. Yeah, it survives, and they're able to take it back on the ship, back mm-hmm. to London. And they do a very King Kong-y, like, unveiling of yeah. the, the giant creature that they've brought back to the city. Uh, in this case, London, rather than New York. And then uh, Challenger is giving this presentation, and then he gets a call from Malone. And he's like, dude, the, the dinosaurs <laughs> escaped! <laughs> Oh no! Oh shit! What are we gonna do? Yeah. And then there, there's a great bit where uh, uh, Challenger yells, "My Brontosaurus has escaped," which is <laughs> never, yeah, never good all, news. All the scientists are like, "Yeah, yeah, likely story." Well, yeah. like the, once again, not bringing the receipts, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, very quickly, they're proven wrong. As uh, humans are f- running and fleeing and getting trampled on by a giant dinosaur, yeah, uh, walking across Tower Bridge and it through London, just and knocking down buildings, crushing stuff, <laughs> stepping things. into subway stations. Uh, it's it's it goes on for a while, and I love every moment. <laughs> it's so good. this is far and away my favorite part of the movie. I sent you a meme. The 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 thing from the yeah. onion of the guy going yes ha 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 yes uh in the shirt that because, says sickos yes <laughs> because that i literally while I was, I was watching this movie by myself at the theater and i just like just screamed yes <laughs> yeah. when, uh, 
<laughs> when the dinosaur got loose. It's, uh, it's, it's great. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and these shots are done with, uh, like double exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike the other ones where the, the dinosaurs are like fully, um, fully opaque and they're just matted off in a different part of the shot. Uh, in this, because they wanted the dinosaur in the same shot with the people, the dinosaur is a little translucent, mm-hmm. uh, but it is still, it, yeah, it's still so cool. Yeah. And like, it's these really high up shots of people running and fleeing from this huge stop motion. Oh, it's great. It's yeah. Great. Um, very, yeah, very King Kong-esque. It's the sort of thing where it's like, oh, that just comes from this directly, pretty much. Um... <laughs> In the book, they bring back a pterodactyl, which does escape, but uh, causes significantly less mayhem. It sort of, like, gets out, and then it's like, oh, it, it escaped. Um, <laughs> which I, I'm glad, I liked the decision to, like, let's make it a brontosaurus, and let's have it, <laughs> like, destroy <laughs> London. You gotta, you gotta punch it up for the movie. <laughs> yeah. And then, well, instead of being attacked by airplanes, the brontosaurus just jumps into the Thames and escapes and it's just loose at the, you know, you know what I kind of thought is that maybe this is like a Nessie origin story. Oh, Uh, maybe. Yeah. They, they brought a a brontosaurus to, uh, to the UK and then it it swims (laughs) over to Loch Ness. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Um, and then we get, uh, uh, the ending to the kind of love triangle subplot where, uh, when they get back to London, Gladys has married some rando. So then Ed Malone is free to, is free to hook up with, uh, with Paula, who's been kind of flirting with the whole movie. They, well, they, at some point when they're on the plateau, they think they're stuck there forever. They're like, I guess we're going to get married now. We're the only like young, hot people here. So I guess that's what we have to do. (laughs) There's a crazy adventurer, two old men and us young, hot people. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's the movie. I I think I was watching some of the commentary on the Blu-ray on this, which has a lot of cool, like behind the scenes facts and stuff. Um, one of which is tying this back into the news segment is that Conan, Arthur Conan Doyle knew Percy Fawcett, who disappeared in 1925 in the Amazon looking for a lost city. Whoa. Um, <laughs> And that, like, Percy Fawcett might have been someone who kind of inspired the book of this. Because I think the book was written in 1912. And Percy Fawcett had spent a good chunk of the early 1900s, 1910s, looking for this lost city. Uh, If you've read the book or seen the movie The Lost City of Zed about Percy Fawcett, that goes into a lot of detail about his whole story. It's very interesting. Hmm. Um... But it's kind of interesting that this movie came out the same year that Percy Fawcett disappeared. Another thing, like doing research about this movie, I didn't realize that Professor Challenger is in a bunch of other stories. Like, he kept writing stories about Challenger. Um, and all of them have the coolest, pulpiest names possible. Ooh, give me so, a like, the next one after this is called The Poison Belt which is about the Earth passing through a, like, poison cloud in outer space. What? (laughs) Uh, And then after that is The Land of Mist. Uh, And then two short stories, which are When the World Screamed, 
and the disintegration machine. I mean, oh my god! I got, oh I got, I gotta read all these. These are too good. <laughs> this movie, like a lot of silent movies, is sort of like the current version of it is like an approximation of what the release was. Like it's taken from like a bunch of different sources and like trying to like piece together what the original movie was based on like all the pieces that have been found of it, mm-hmm. which is just something that keeps coming up and is like wild that it, wild that one it's been able to have been restored the degree that it has been. Um, but also just that that's necessary that it's like, there was like an American print that had a bunch of these scenes. And then there was like a different, like a, a European print that had like different scenes that then had to get like reassembled. It's all. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's a shame that, uh, silent films have ended up in such a state, but people do really great work. Mm-hmm. Uh, reconstructing them. Um, this movie was written by Marion Fairfax, who was a really uh, prolific uh, screenwriter in the 20s. There's an ape man in this movie that feels very sort of... Uh, <laughs> I forgot that we didn't uh, didn't mention the ape man. Gotta mention the ape man. Um, it feels very kind of uh, like a predecessor to like the ape, ape people in 2001. Yeah. Um, but with a more sort of sinister look. Yeah, he's definitely trying to like more definitely trying to kill and eat these adventurers. Yes. Um but there's like a guy in a, in the sort of ape man costume and makeup and then there's just an actual chimpanzee that he ha- hangs out with. Which is kind of yeah, the, funny. Yeah, there's a point where they like specifically go like is that guy some kind of missing link or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is this guy missing link? Um <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, there's a bit where they're like, they shoot at him and he gets injured. And there's kind of a brief scene where you see him kind of like nursing himself back to health. And it's like, oh, we have a scene of pathos for the ape man. Which, which we need. Yeah. I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't movies as a thing pathos for the ape man? Uh, largely, yes. <laughs> Something that comes up a lot in, in film, surprisingly. We we they're they're empathy machines. Yeah. And we as ape men operate. <laughs> <laughs> um another thing that uh I guess is sort of like uh news not really news, but a, a thing that I've been noticing a lot in a lot of film like nineteen twenties movies is old lenses, old like portrait lenses in particular have this like kind of swirly effect around the edges. Where the the bokeh, the out of focus shapes, will sort of create this kind of circular, there's this kind of circular distortion to it, which is really, I think, looks really cool. And uh, so, in researching that, I ended up going on eBay and buying a new lens for my camera that has that has that sort of like look to it. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. You'll have to send me a picture. Yeah, I noticed it a lot in the Lost World, so I can probably get a screen cap showing that and then maybe uh, I've been trying to like play with this lens and try to get it to like look similar because it's it's, wow. a, it's a cool it's a cool effect look at look at you film production guy who's just like ah an interesting lens I will buy it well it's also I found out that so the lens I bought is an old Soviet lens from like the 70s and they bought they made so many of them that you can buy them on eBay now for like 50 bucks 
which for a camera lens is nothing. Wow, um, nice. So they, they make other ones that are sort of like a bit more, uh, you know, newer and sort of like have all mo- more modern features and things like that, but they're more modern. Um, but it was like, well, for that price, I might as well. <laughs> and that, uh, I don't, I don't notice lenses very much because I'm just not like attuned to it. Mm. But one, one thing that I do notice is, uh, we had a Shaw Brothers movie on just like the TVs at work the other day. And it seems like Shaw Brothers use these just really extreme anamorphic lenses. So anything that's near mm. the edge of the frame is like so distorted. It, it, right. it almost yeah. like looks like the edge of a fisheye, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know what they were doing. Cause like there are lots of anamorphic movies that don't have that much distortion mm-hmm. or it's like yeah. very light, but like with, specifically like 70s and 80s like cinemascope kung fu movies like it you you turn into silly into like a funhouse mirror when you get to the yeah. edge of the screen yeah. there was a, a soderbergh movie that came out a couple years ago uh no sudden move that used i think yeah like vintage 70s uh anamorphic lenses that have that same like super wild distortion on the edges that mm-hmm. is like I don't know. I love anamorphic lenses, like the aesthetic of them and the ways that they kind of distort things. And yet that's like too much for me. That's like, I draw the line there. It's just, that's just too <laughs> weird looking. But yeah, I don't know. It's something that I, I notice more and more is like lens quirks. Hmm. In in these movies or just in general? Just in general. But yeah, in these movies, okay. that was something I, I had noticed more and more of, of is this sort of like circular out of focus distortion. Um thing it it's it's very distinctive and it's something that i don't see a lot of in in movies now because it is like a defect like mm-hmm. it it comes from just really old lenses that haven't like you know don't account for that distortion that will like newer lenses will make it look like your eye sees um but i don't know i, I like that stuff i think it's it gives it character and on that note on that note Anything else uh, to say? No. Podcast okay. over. Great. Uh, <laughs> Just cut it there. <laughs> what was your favorite movie of this episode? I mean, what? I I think... I mean, I'm, people will yell at me for this. I think, like, the best movie we watched was Potemkin. But, like, my favorite has got to be Lost World. Like, Lost World has a lot of things that count against it. I mean, I think... It's it's plot stuff is kind of generic and not super interesting. It's like, all right, they go to a place and there's a love triangle and uh, whatever. Um, the unfortunate 1920s blackface is shitty and I think does sort of like knock a star off this movie in terms of like its quality. Mm-hmm. Um, or just watchability, I guess. Yeah, harder to just put it on. Yeah, I actually was just putting it on the background uh, yesterday, and I was like, Ugh. "Yeah, it's like <laughs> it 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 might prevent this movie from going on the put put it on in the background at the party um, playlist." Unfortunately, because like if I could find like just the dinosaur scenes, maybe throw those in there. Yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah, I think in terms of my overall just sort of like reaction to it, I think I'm gonna go with Lost World. It, it feels it's it's so on brand with its pulpy adventure <laughs> shit. Yeah, 
<laughs> well, yeah, I'm glad you picked that because Battleship Potemkin blew I mean, my dang mind. Yeah. Uh, and I think... It's kind of it the, the obvious choice of the best movie of this year. Oh, thanks. That's very... Uh, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that as a put-down, but it's like... Um, it's like also kind of my favorite movie this year. It's just, I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to pick Lost World to give it some, some, give our, so we each pick something different. Yeah. That's always, that's always good. I, yeah. I feel like, like, um, Bowser Potemkin may be the, like, best movie that we have seen so far. Uh, mm. at least in terms of, you know, quality. Um. It's up there. Yeah. That'll about do it. For this episode, once again, uh, check us out on social medias and YouTubes and whatnot if if you're trying to keep up to date with us. We're going to move on to 1926 next episode because that's how this works. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) We've uh, uh, shifted our release over a week because I'm moving and just uh, stuff's hard right now. But um, I think we'll, we'll... We'll probably get back on the two week, the once every two week thing, but just shift it over one week. Thanks everybody for listening and for watching on YouTube. Thanks for your comments and your subscriptions. And uh, that's, yeah, that's the podcast stuff. Yeah. Glenn, that's it for this episode. See you next year. See you next year.